Hello everybody, Sean McMahon here. Today we're talking about the biblical doctrine of the thousand years, otherwise known as the millennium. This is a concept pertaining to biblical eschatology or end times prophecies in the Bible. And the concept of the millennium of the thousand years is found in Revelation 20 and also 2 Peter chapter 3 in the Bible. Now this is part two, so check out part one if you haven't already. And please like, subscribe, and share this content if you're digging it. So, diving right back in, we established in the last study that Peter taught that his own generation in the first century AD was living in the midst of the thousand years at the time that the epistle, 2 Peter, was written. Okay, And he wants to emphasize, this isn't a literal thousand years. He says, a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day with the Lord, he says. Okay, so fair enough. But we also established that the thousand years concept isn't really well documented in the Bible. We just don't really find it talked about outside of Revelation chapter 20 and 2 Peter chapter 3. It's just two chapters in the whole of the Bible. So where does this idea come from and what exactly did it mean to the New Testament church? Well, interestingly enough, the answer is actually to be found outside of the Bible in the books of Enoch. But before we look at Enoch, let's take a little pit stop over at the epistle of Barnabas. And what we're doing here is we're venturing into what's called the Apocrypha, the apocryphal books outside of the biblical canon. Okay, These are books that our Christian forebears long ago decided didn't need to be included in the biblical canon. That is, did not need to be included in the biblical canon. But nonetheless, these books weren't condemned either. Uh, they're to be read very carefully with discernment. Okay, there's there's good stuff in there, but it's not stuff that was considered by our early Christian ancestors to be necessary to our salvation. That's kind of how they looked at it. Okay, so we can take a look at the Epistle of Barnabas. Again, it's going to have some good stuff. It's not going to show us everything we need for salvation. The biblical canon was chosen for this reason, that you read the Bible, it's going to give you everything you need. But that doesn't mean that there's not good stuff in the Epistle of Barnabas. And it's going to show us a little bit about the millennium. That's very fascinating. Because the Epistle of Barnabas, it's almost like the book of Hebrews, part two. It's it's almost like that. In fact, some people think it had the same author. Okay. Well, it goes into length about how the Old Testament was all about Christ, actually. And in fact, the Epistle of Barnabas was actually pretty prescient in teaching that subsequent generations would likely not understand the Old Testament anymore, because by the time the Epistle of Barnabas was written, the temple had already fallen, and the world of the Old Testament, with all of its symbols in the, in the landscape of Jerusalem, etc., this was all gone. That city was destroyed. It's tragic, okay? And, and we see that Barnabas affirms this. The reason we know this is that in uh, chapter 16, verses 3 through 4, Barnabas says uh, the temple's gone, right? He says that this has already happened. Okay, so what does the epistle of Barnabas have to say about the thousand years? Well, check this out. It's when he's talking about the Sabbath. So I'll be reading from chapter 15. Uh, we're going to start with verses 3 through 5. So here's what he says. Of the Sabbath, he speaketh in the beginning of the creation. And God made the works of his hands in six days, and he ended on the seventh day, and rested on it, and he hallowed it. Give heed, children, what this meaneth. He ended in six days. He meaneth this, 
that in 6,000 years the Lord shall bring all things to an end. For the day with him signifieth a thousand years. Oh, doesn't that, that sound familiar? Moving on. Uh, and this he himself beareth me witness, saying, Behold, the day of the Lord shall be as a thousand years. Okay, so, Therefore, children, in six days, that is, in six thousand years, everything shall come to an end. And he rested on the seventh day. This he meaneth, when his son shall come, and shall abolish the time of the lawless one, and shall judge the ungodly, and shall change the sun and the moon and the stars, then shall he truly rest on the seventh day. Now let's pause here. Now isn't that interesting, right? Barnabas is alluding to Second Peter. He's saying, he quotes, For the day with him signifieth a thousand years. He also, interestingly enough, says that God said somewhere, he said, Behold, the day of the Lord shall be as a thousand years. The day of the Lord, right? Well, that's interesting. Is he just kind of playing with the language again? Because Peter said uh, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years. Is he just saying, you know, the not a day with the Lord, but the day of the Lord shall be as a thousand years? Maybe. Or maybe it's a little deeper than that, because uh, it's a very important little concept that the day of the Lord itself is as a thousand years. The day of the Lord itself is as a thousand years. Well, that is something, and we're going to get more into it later. But this passage has Barnabas teaching that the seven-day creation scheme in Genesis points to a 7,000-year timeline from creation to Christ's coming. And again, I, want to, I just want to clarify, this isn't saying that the creation process in Genesis took 7,000 years. To clarify, it's saying that the seven-day process in Genesis was a foreshadowing of a 7,000-year process from Genesis to the coming of Messiah. Interesting, right? Uh, he says, in 6,000 years, the Lord shall bring all things to an end when the Sabbath comes. Okay, well, let's note how Barnabas interprets the Sabbath. He, he writes, and he rested on the seventh day. This he meaneth, when his son shall come and shall abolish the time of the lawless one and shall judge the ungodly and shall change the sun and the moon and the stars, then shall he truly rest on the seventh day. Okay, so the seventh day, which Barnabas said is as a thousand years, is when the sun shall come back. So let's ask, does this refer to Christmas or the parousia? In other words, the first advent or the second advent of Christ? Well, let's keep reading. So, Epistle of Barnabas, chapter 15, verse 6 and following. Yes, and furthermore he saith, Thou shalt hallow it, the Sabbath, with pure hands and with a pure heart. If therefore a man is able now to hallow the day which God hallowed, though he be pure in heart, we've gone utterly astray. Now pause. This kind of makes it sound like at the time of writing, this Sabbath hadn't yet come, right? But that's actually not where Barnabas is getting at with this. Let's keep reading this, okay? I want you to bear this in mind how he gets to this. So this is now verse 7 following. But after all then, and not till then, shall we truly rest and hallow it when we shall ourselves be able to do so after being justified and receiving the promise, when iniquity is no more and all things have been made new by the Lord, we shall be able to hallow it then, because we ourselves shall have been hallowed first. And finally he says to them, 
Your new moons and your Sabbaths I cannot away with. You see what is his meaning. It's not your present Sabbaths which are acceptable unto me, but the Sabbath which I have made, in the which, when I have set all things at rest, I will make the beginning of the eighth day, which is the beginning of another world. Pause again. An eighth day? What is he talking about? Okay, this is probably when we should look at Enoch now. Okay, before we finish this Barnabas passage, let's interject Enoch. Because Barnabas is getting his ideas from Second Enoch. There is this short passage from chapter 32 and 33 in Second Enoch. Here's what it says. This is God speaking to Enoch. And I blessed the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, on which he, Adam, rested from all his works. And I appointed the eighth day also, that the eighth day should be the first created after my work, and that the first seven revolve in the form of the seventh thousand, and that at the beginning of the eighth thousand there should be a time of not counting, endless, with neither years, nor months, nor weeks, nor days, nor hours. Okay, so that's what it says in Second Enoch. Interesting, right? So Enoch is told by God himself in this passage about this 7,000-year scheme. And then there's also this 8,000, which is endless, eternal, right? Now bear this in mind. When we dive back into Barnabas, where he finishes his statement, here's what he says. He says, Wherefore, also we keep the eighth day for rejoicing, in the which also Jesus rose from the dead, and having been manifested, ascended into the heavens. Hmm. Okay, interesting, right? See how Barnabas connects the eighth day, which is also an 8,000-year thing, right? But he connects it with the resurrection of Christ. Well, this is significant. For starters, it shows that Christians didn't just replace the Sabbath with Sunday, right? Because Sunday is not the Sabbath, according to the Christian view. It's the day after the Sabbath, right? The, the Sabbath is the seventh day, but Sunday apparently is the eighth day. Well, what's more significant and fascinating is that according to Barnabas, the seventh day represents when the sun shall come, but the eighth day represents when he rises. And he's talking about typological things here. But what this gives us is some potential insight for our early question about which advent Barnabas is talking about with the seventh day. Well, he's talking about the first advent of Christ. Well, if the eighth day pertains to his resurrection, then by implication, the seventh day refers to his first advent, right? Which preceded his passion and resurrection. Now, as for this Sabbath advent of Christ, Barnabas said, Thou shalt hallow it, the Sabbath, with pure hands and a pure heart. If therefore a man is able now to hallow the day which God hallowed, though he be pure in heart, we've gone astray, utterly astray. So again, it sounds for a moment like he's saying this couldn't have happened yet, right? Because we can't do this. Well, follow his teaching further, okay? Because this is a long passage and it's interesting. In order to hallow the Sabbath with pure hands and a pure heart, sin has to be dealt with, right? And so along these lines, Barnabas starts talking about the temple where sins were traditionally dealt with through sacrifice, okay? So this is Barnabas uh, 16, verse 1 and following. Moreover, I will tell you likewise concerning the temple, how these wretched men, being led astray, set their hope on the building, and not on their God that made them, as being a house of God. For like the Gentiles almost, they consecrated him in the temple. But what saith the Lord about abolishing the temple? 
learn ye. Okay, so that's interesting. He's saying that the Lord had a plan to abolish the temple. And here's what he says. Who hath measured the heaven with a span, or hath measured the earth with his hand? Have not I, saith the Lord. The heaven is my throne, and the earth the footstool of my feet. What manner of house will you build for me, or what shall be my resting place? And Barnabas says, so you perceive that their hope is vain. Again, in building a temple out of a building, out of a stone. Furthermore, he saith again, Behold, they that pulled down this temple themselves shall build it. And so it cometh to pass. For because they went to war, it was pulled down by their enemies. Now also the very servants of their enemies shall build it up. Now note, Barnabas right now, he's talking about the destruction of the first temple because their enemies were the Babylonians who destroyed it. But it was then the Babylonian king who later decreed it be rebuilt, right? It was the very servants of their enemies who shall build it up. Verse 5, he continues, Again, it was revealed how the city and the temple and the people of Israel shall be betrayed. For the scripture saith, And it shall be in the last days, that the Lord shall deliver up the sheep of the pasture, and the fold, and the tower thereof to destruction. Now he's talking here about the destruction of the second temple. And watch what he says. He says, And it came to pass as the Lord spake. Okay, so this is how we know that Barnabas is writing after the destruction of the second temple in AD 70, because there's no longer a temple in Jerusalem. Let's continue, because this is where it gets quite interesting from verse 6 on. So Barnabas says, But let us inquire whether there be any temple of God. There is, in the place where he himself undertakes to make and finish it. For it is written, and it shall come to pass, when the week is being accomplished, the temple of God shall be built gloriously in the name of the Lord. So he's referring here to Daniel 9.24, right? He's talking about Daniel's seven weeks. And Daniel 9.24 says, the Messiah anoints the most holy place. He's talking about the temple being built by God, not man. He continues, I find then that there is a temple. How then shall it be built in the name of the Lord? Well, understand ye. Before we believed on God, the abode of our heart was corrupt and weak, a temple truly built by hands, for it was full of idolatry and was a house of demons, because we did whatsoever was contrary to God. But it shall be built in the name of the Lord. Give heed then that the temple of the Lord may be built gloriously. How? Understand ye. By receiving the remission of our sins and hoping on the name, we became new, created afresh from the beginning. Wherefore, God dwelleth tru truly in our habitation within us. In other words, he's saying we are the temple. And then he says, how? The word of his faith, the calling of his promise, the wisdom of the ordinances, the sacraments, the commandments of the teaching. He himself prophesying in us, he himself dwelling in us, opening for us who had been in bondage unto death the door of the temple, which is the mouth, and giving us repentance leading to the incorruptible temple. For he that desireth to be saved looketh not to the man, but to him that dwelleth and speaketh in him, being amazed at this, that he has never at any time heard these words from the mouth of the speaker, nor himself ever desired to hear them. This is the spiritual temple built up to the Lord.
Whoa, that's deep, right? And it's fantastic. Barnabas shows here in no uncertain terms that the Messianic temple is in the heart of the church. And that's exactly what it says in the Bible. St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? And he's talking to all of them. He's talking to the church, right? Okay, cool. Now let's tie this all together because as Barnabas said, there is a temple and therefore there is remission of sins. And if there is remission of sins, then their hearts and their hands may in fact be pure. You know what that means? Well, this is the if slash then condition about the Sabbath that he stated earlier. Well, this is fulfilled in other words, because let's read it again. This is the if then condition. He said, if therefore a man is able now to hallow the day which God hallowed, though he be pure in heart, we have gone utterly astray. But if after all then and not till then shall we truly rest and hallow it, when we shall ourselves be able to do so after being justified and receiving the promise, when iniquity is no more and all things have been made new by the Lord, we shall be able to hallow it then, because we ourselves shall have been hallowed first. That's what's fulfilled. That's the if-then condition that's fulfilled. In short, Barnabas was teaching that by the power of God, not by the power of man, they were able to hallow it because they themselves had been hallowed first by Christ, by, by the forgiveness of sins, etc. That's where Barnabas is saying, this is fulfilled. How? This way. How? This way. Okay. So where does that therefore place Barnabas in terms of this thousand years scheme? Well, that's an interesting question. Because if they had already been hallowed, that means they were hallowed in the day of hallowing, which is the Sabbath. That's the seventh day. Well, that was already passed for Barnabas because he's saying we've already been hallowed. In fact, Barnabas has just stated the case that he and the church were in the eighth day, the endless thousand years from Enoch. Interesting. And again, here's a reminder from 2 Enoch 33 verse 1. And I appointed the eighth day also that the eighth day should be the first created after my work and that the first seven revolve in the form of the seventh thousand and that at the beginning of the eighth thousand there should be a time of not counting, endless, with neither years nor months nor weeks nor days nor hours. It's an eternal day, okay? That's where Barnabas is saying they're at. And, and we've been there ever since, okay? That's it, the eternal day. But Sean, you might ask, time hasn't stopped. 2,000 years of war and anguish and death and sin have passed since Barnabas wrote this down, right? Well, yes, that has happened. But nonetheless, the eighth day seems to have come, if we're reading this right. We can't impose our own ideas onto this. we got to take it as it's written down. And Barnabas laid out very clearly what this all means in the context of the prophetic tradition. Now, we might have our own meanings that we want to superimpose onto eternity and thousands of years and what it means for the Lord to come and to make peace and for the sun and moon and stars, etc., to be changed. And I'll get to that, by the way, in another part. But again, that's not the prophetic tradition. That's our uh, sense of what those things mean. But what does the prophetic tradition say about these things? We need to clarify a little more what exactly the eighth day is, right? So go back to that passage from Enoch. It says the eighth day is the first created after my work. That's from 2 Enoch 33. Well, first created, doesn't that kind of ring a bell? 
Christ is the firstborn of all creation, right? He's also the first fruits of the new creation, the, the first fruits of the resurrection. That's in 1 Corinthians 15, 23. And of course, to be in Christ, right? If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. That's from 2 Corinthians 5, 17. So in fact, to be in Christ is to be in the eighth day. So brothers and sisters, what I'm getting out of this study at this point is that the church herself is the eighth day. Intrigued? Good. Yeah, it's a very fascinating way to look at it. The church herself is the eighth day. Let's continue this thread in the next part. We're, we'll dive back into the canonical scriptures, not just to verify all this stuff we just dug up in the Apocrypha, but actually to go even deeper into it. Because once we're back in scripture, we're going to see all this stuff is in there, and it's an even deeper dive. It gives us even more information about how all this works, and it's fascinating. So again, if you're digging this, please like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and definitely share it with people that might find this interesting, because I find this fascinating, and I hope I'm sharing my enthusiasm for this study with you all, too. God bless. Thanks for listening. Peace in Jesus. Amen.